This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? or like sort of understated or what. This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Greening the Apocalypse, Triple R's weekly look at the future and how to avoid it. I'm Adam Grubb. I'm in the studio with Jed McCartney. We have not laid eyes on each other for a couple of months. That might be the longest I've not seen you in three or four years. It is. It's it's our longest break apart. Yeah. Did you miss me? I did. I missed you I did, actually. Well, we got a pretty good show lined up, I believe. It certainly holds a lot of promise because we're talking to James Ward, who is a senior lecturer at the University of South Australia in civil and environmental engineering and environmental management and he's got a background in numerical modelling and has published a whole lot of papers around things like world energy supplies and things about peak oil and climate change. And he's sort of drilled down also into strategies for that, like urban agriculture and, and relocalising food stuff and looked at it from all different angles. And we have him on the line from Adelaide. How are you, James? I'm really, really well, thanks. And thanks for having me. Are you um you're in your car right now? I understand. I'm in my car, parked in my driveway. Okay. <laughs> oh, they're actually cars are like brilliant sound booths. I've recorded things inside cars before. Yeah. <laughs> good. This is my strategy for for good acoustics. Um. Well, there, there's a couple of papers that have stood out in your large list of ones that you have written uh, that we want to talk about tonight. One of them is about the idea of decoupling GDP growth from environmental impact. Another one is about the projection of world fossil fuel production globally and by country. And those two obviously are intimately linked. And then there's all sorts of other things you've written we could talk about as well. And we'll just roll with it as it comes. But just tell me, like, what, how did you get in, interested in this stuff and what are your, your primary interests these days that you research, if there's anything I've missed? Oh, look, you've... you've You've covered it brilliantly. Um, how did I get interested? Okay, so we've got to cast the clock back a few years, and I was uh, I was stuck doing my PhD in um, underground water, so modelling how water moves um, in aquifers, mm-hmm. and that was in- interesting enough. But um, it was around the time that that peak oil was um, was becoming quite topical, mm. and we're talking circa two thousand five, two thousand six. Yeah, um, we should define that, I guess. Define peak oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so peak oil being the um, name given to the the point in time, really, when the world oil supply reaches its overall peak and starts declining thereafter. Yeah. It's sort of used as a uh, an umbrella term for peak. Uh, well, 
it, uh, it, it flows on to uh, peak energy, peak fossil fuel energy, and, and the peak of other non-renewable resources. I mean, you can't grow the extraction rate of a non-renewable resource forever. You'll start to uh, deplete the resource, and I'm sure most of your listeners are pretty well across these ideas. They were, Certainly they were, our podcast listeners would be, because we talk about it regularly, but not necessarily all our free-to-air listeners. Um, but, yeah, it, it definitely had its moment in the sun in the early to mid or even late 2000s that the world mm. seemed to be paying attention as oil prices went up to this idea that oil might uh, – well, it's obviously a, a finite resource and that the the peak of production might not be too far in the future. So, And I had a similar kind of uh, shock of like, well, that – puts a lot of my assumptions about the future into question and it seems like maybe something like that happened to you did it absolutely so we're yeah we're probably similar age and we're um we're in our, our early adulthood at this time i guess and and starting to think well what does that mean in terms of the in my case the university degree i'd just finished i was a, an engineer i was doing a phd and suddenly realized that all of these assumptions about um the world we live in are uh, uh flawed in many ways, certainly the assumptions of ongoing growth. And um, so I, while I was doing my PhD in this other other field, I became more and more interested in um, in researching the, what's the sort of the underlying science behind this, this idea of peak energy. And at the time, the, the dominant theory was that, um, that world oil supplies would rise and fall in a, um, if you drew a graph over time of uh, the oil supply, then it would get larger and larger and larger, reach a peak, and then it would go down in a perfectly symmetrical bell shape. And I sort of thought, that doesn't seem right. doesn't really seem to be any logic why it should be perfectly symmetrical. Mm. And started to drill down into the, the science behind uh, oil supplies, and that eventually led me to cross paths with um, uh, another young academic, Dr. Steve Moore, and he was doing his PhD on modelling the world's fossil fuel supply. And so he and I have been uh, kicking around with a few research ideas over the last few years since we met each other probably a decade ago. And, um, yeah, so we put together a publication in uh, 2015 that was using the model he developed from his PhD to simulate the... uh, well, to project into the future the entire world's fossil fuel supply. That's all different types of coal, all different types of oil, all different types of gas, including methane hydrates, which is a theoretical energy source that mm-hmm. we could potentially tap underneath the ocean if we really were committed to uh, to cooking the climate. Yep. <laughs> um, so, so it's really strange because you're kind of um, modelling this stuff through... Well, well, the rest of your peers in the environmental space uh, are looking at how can we get off fossil fuels and um, and get off fossil fuels as quickly as possible to try and um, and solve the climate crisis. Mm. We're doing this model um, to sort of say, well, theoretically, how if if we wanted to grow our fossil fuel supply as high as possible, how high could we get it before it starts to decline because it's um, starting to deplete the resources? So it was kind of this, um, it was like turning you back on, on mainstream environmentalism and then walking backwards or something strange. I don't know what the 
what the appropriate metaphor is. But right, yeah, because you're thinking about was, just theoretically, if we wanted to burn the planet, how fast could we do it? Yeah, and what we found was that actually this um, these constraints to the fossil fuel supply are, are going to kick in pretty soon. Not because of oil, actually, but because of coal. So China, I've just returned from a teaching trip in China. So mm-hmm. you were talking about places with lots of people. Um, I was in a, one of the smaller cities that only had 9 million people in it. Um, and, I mean, that, coming from Australia, coming from the Adelaide Hills where I'm currently parked and I can't see a single human, um, to, to go to a, um, a city of 9 million was, uh, was mind-blowing. But anyway, China. So uh, China has ramped up its coal supply uh, over the last 20-odd years in this era of incredibly rapid economic growth. Yeah. And they've depleted their um, coal resource uh, enormously, which, I mean, it, it follows. If you increase the production, then you increase the rate of depletion. Mm-hmm. And within the next few years, our models predicted as, as early as 2020, um, and certainly within the decade of 2020 to 2030, China would, um, by our estimates, uh, reach uh, a peak and begin quite a rapid decline. And that's in the absence of any deliberate policies to move away from coal. Yeah. And that reversal would, uh, would send the entire world energy supply uh, into a, a decline phase because China's coal production is such a significant part of the world's energy uh, mix that it's, um, it alone would, would be sufficient to turn the, um, uh, well, to bring about peak energy worldwide. So that's, that's sort of where we got to with that. Um, can you just, just paint us a picture of what the world energy mix is right now? Because okay, how so much of it is fossil fuels? How much of it is hydro, nuclear, and renewables? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I'm going to um, have to use some fairly round numbers. And um, in round terms, about 80% fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. But 20% of renewables is dominated by not by what you might think of as renewables in terms of what we have in Australia solar panels and, and wind and, and hydro, high tech. Um, but in fact, the, the majority of the renewable energy used worldwide is biomass fuels used in developing countries. Yep. So, um, so then if you, take, if you take that out and go with, with sort of more um, refined energy sources, it's um, more dominated by fossil fuels. And the fossil fuels are, broadly speaking, about 50% coal, um, no, sorry, about 40% coal, yep. and then I, I think about 30% oil, 30% gas, give or take. Um, yep. and so I don't have the precise figures in front of me, but it's yeah. uh, overwhelmingly dominated by um, by the three fossil fuel types. Yeah, yeah. And if you so, if you were to look at wind and solar as what sort of percentage of the global energy mix, even though if you were to look at the graph of their growth, it's quite remarkable. Like, they're really growing very rapidly, but they're still just... Uh, a tiny sliver, a, a, a percent or two of the global energy mix at this point. Absolutely. Which if you're saying in your projections that, and, and let me see if I understand this right, that you're saying that the global energy peak in fossil fuels could be as soon as 2020, and that is driven by a peak in Chinese coal. The, 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 the influence of that alone is such a big impact on the world energy mix that 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 could be where the peak happens um it it seems like that's a certainly a time frame where 
wind and solar wouldn't be available to pick up the slack given that they're starting from such a low base well it depends um that's that's certainly the um i think that's big enough reason for us to be taking this pretty seriously and it's mm. It baffles me as to why governments don't, uh, but I suppose the reason that they don't is that it requires a wholesale admission of the, um, uh, I guess, error in um, in thinking around economic growth. So let's you know, give them sort of the uh, the benefit of the doubt as to why they can't uh, talk about it. But yeah, no, um, I would just sort of offer a caveat. We uh, in that modelling we had to um, to make a number of assumptions about the remaining resource base. And yeah. so we had a low case and we had a high case and then our, our best guess case. They all had a pretty similar time in terms of when the world reaches a peak. Mm. But the speed of the decline was very different from the low case to the high case. Yeah. And um, in the high case, that's where we were invoking large amounts of things like methane hydrates and unconventional oil supplies and moving from the high energy density coals to the low energy density coals and things like that. So um, quite, a, quite a large assumption in terms of technology being able to shift from one energy supply to another within the broad yeah. sort of spectrum of fossil fuels. I've, I've got a feeling that this all just comes across as so dry and academic and yet there, could, there is probably no more singly important set of numbers than the ones you're talking about in the world because... Without energy, nothing happens. With a lot of energy, you have rapid expansion of economies and lifting people up from poverty with just because right. of the power of fossil fuels. And without it, or if not without it, but if there's a change in direction of the amount of fossil fuels available year on year from more and more per year to less and less, that's a, that's a radical shift, one that is going to happen once in human civilization at the scale that we're experiencing it. Um, and so these projections that you're doing and all the uncertainties in them, so much is riding on, on that stuff. Tell me how, like, it's, you're, you're taking these high cases, these low cases, these best guess cases, and you're, you're saying or, and your colleagues are saying that it looks like the peak in all the fossil fuels could be as soon as 20. 20 uh, i mean what's the what's the reliability let's say chinese coal is driving this how much do we know about chinese coal reserves what are the other uncertainties um sure. how much confidence do you have in these projections so I, i've got a high degree of confidence in the projections but i would have to sort of um add or, or continue what i was saying before that hmm. the projections themselves are there's a lot of difference between the low and the high end. Yep. So the high end could see us bumping around on a plateau of total energy supply uh, for the next 50 years. Right, um, yeah. So or 30, 30 years, certainly, um, post-2050. Mm-hmm. And then the decline wouldn't be quite as rapid. That's assuming that we can get access to sort of what, what is currently um, known fossil fuels with unknown recoverability, if that makes sense. So stuff that we're pretty sure is down there, but we're not quite sure whether we would ever actually be able to get at it. For financial um, reasons or, or even energetic reasons, if it takes more right. energy to get out, then, exactly. then you get back from it. Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of excitement uh, in the sort of people who get excited about this and a lot of nervousness among the rest of us um, about unconventional oils in, in the US, for example. So mm. the 
get access to these sort of shale oils and things. Mm. There's another type of oil which um, is not currently economic to get out, which is uh, rather confusingly called sh- uh, oil shale, as uh-huh. thing from sh- shale oil. Uh, forgivable mistake if you get the two confused. Uh, oil shale is basically like a wax. So think of it like uh, like a sandstone sort of material or something that looks a bit like concrete that has then had uh, had candle wax poured through it and it's been allowed to solidify again. Mm-hmm. And that, you, you can drill all the holes you like in, uh, in that material. It just doesn't flow because it's a solid. So you've got to melt it somehow or you've got to actually dig up the rock and then heat it up. So that's one of these examples where energetically it might not make a lot of sense. Economically it might not make a lot of sense. But in aggregate, there is a hell of a lot of that resource there. So if, if in our sort of wildest fantasies we decided let's just throw everything at it and try and, um, and cook the planet in the interest of um, keeping our economic dreams afloat for a few more years, then we, we could uh, stay on this kind of bumpy plateau and we'd have to adjust all of our power plants to, uh, to run on low-energy low coal and we'd have to uh, figure out how to melt this wax and turn it into petroleum and things like that. But we could, in principle, we could do it and that would gain us another couple of decades before we have to um, you know, face up to the wolf at the door. James, maybe maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but it, this seems to me like a really good argument for um, moving towards renewables as fast as we can. I mean, if this is going to run out at some point, um, forget the effect of the... Well, don't forget it. <laughs> Please don't forget it. But um, regardless of the effect that the fossil fuels are having, if we're not going to have them anyway, then we should be remo- moving to renewables, surely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, um, I think that's uh, you hit the nail on that. It gives us a reason. You don't have to invoke climate change as as the reason for moving towards fossil fuels. You can invoke this scarcity. I think one of the issues we face is that um, a considerable number of people who oppose the concept of climate change, or who, who are sort of sceptical or, or in denial about climate change, very possibly are also sceptical or in denial about the idea that there could be any sort of physical limits that um, that sort of place a cap on the scale of the human enterprise. And I think that so we can say, look, we now have an, another compelling argument, but it's kind of like going to someone who's uh, a, a chain smoker and, uh, and an alcoholic and saying both of these things are, um, are doing you damage and they sort of don't believe you on, on either front. So, right. I think mm-hmm. I've yeah, heard it said yeah. that maybe climate change plays to our egos a bit more because it's our own power that is destroying the, you know, potent, you know, cre- creating havoc. Whereas peak oil is more about our dependence on this resource, and it undermines the idea that it's purely human ingenuity which has got us to this incredible point of technological progress. That it's actually um, it. Underneath it all is the fact that it couldn't exist without this one-time drawdown of the fossil fuel resources. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R.
We are discussing peak energy and things related to that with James Ward, senior lecturer at the University of South Australia, who we're discussing one a uh, paper that was in the journal Fuel, co-authored by him, the projection of world fossil fuels by country, but it's not just by country, it's by the whole world. How much fossil fuel will there be in the future? What is your best guess? In fact, I think that's the name of one of the scenarios. And in that scenario, it seemed like world fossil fuel production could peak as soon as 2020, driven by Chinese coal. In We were just saying before we went to the break, James, that um, the, the interface between this and climate change is, is a strange one because what, what does it mean, let's say your best guess is true, for the worst case of climate change scenarios? Yeah, <clears throat> this is a really interesting um, thing that not many people are talking about, and it's something that we wanted to, a point we wanted to make in that paper. Hmm. Obviously, if if our worst case, kind of our worst nightmare of climate change is driven by us theoretically just increasing and increasing and increasing our, our uh, greenhouse gas emissions until we cook the place, hmm. then clearly that is at odds with a scenario in which our fossil fuels which are the, the dominant cause of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, if that peaks in, say, 2020 to 2030 and starts to fairly rapidly decline. And in fact, that scenario of peak and decline is, is a lot closer to what has historically been a low to medium range scenario in mm. the climate change literature. So if I take a little step back for, for the sake of, um, of your listeners, so climate change projections, that's the predictions of how the planet might unfold, are... Uh, um, are done because we, there's a lot of uncertainty going forward. They're, they're done with low, medium, and high um, emissions scenarios. So they they cover all the bases to sort of say, well, if we got our act together and um, and reduced our greenhouse gas emissions, then the future would look like this, and we'd get this amount of warming and that amount of sea level rise, and um, and so forth. And then they have a medium range and a high a high emissions trajectory. Now the high trajectory sees greenhouse gas emissions increasing all the way to the year 2100 and continuing to rise uh, after that. And what our modelling showed was that we're going to run short on fossil fuels, even in our our high case. And remember that, uh, that high case was the one where we um, basically threw everything at it. That's where we're, we're drilling in to the seafloor to get methane hydrate, where we're melting the the waxy um, oil shales in the US. It's where we're uh, we're converting from high uh, high energy density coals to low energy density coals. We're doing everything we can, and in that scenario, we were able to maybe produce a scenario that lined up with what's historically been a medium emissions mm. scenario. And in our in our really, guess that, yeah, Cause, uh, because yeah, that's surprising. Because not even are you are you like allowing for large resources being yep. being turned into energy and therefore releasing CO two, but they're dirtier ones, the ones that are going to produce more CO two per unit energy, and you still couldn't mm. get the high case. I mean, I could imagine why people concerned about climate change wouldn't want to hear this. One thing that I think is maybe an interesting angle on it, but. Uh, climate change is like this tragedy of the commons. It, if you want to reduce your consumption, you, you're kind of doing it in a way where if others are, are just consuming 
as much or more than they were previously, you might feel bitter about that because they're destroying the planet. You're trying to do your bit. If you look at it through the lens of peak energy, there's much more of self-interest in there because it's like, well, this stuff is coming whether we like it or not. You're going to have to tighten your belt globally and therefore learning to do with less is actually strategic. It's how to prepare uh, for future inevitabilities. What kind of reaction are you getting? And and by the way, most of the adaptation uh, adaptation strategies that you do for peak energy are the same as what you would do for climate change with the exception of when you're getting into those dirtier fuels but certainly going to renewables consuming less there's a there's a large overlap of those venn diagrams what kind of reaction are you getting from people in the climate community when you say these kind of things are you, are you finding kinship or aggression uh, i i have tremendous respect for people who work in uh in the climate change community um but they're they're not very positive about the outcomes of our research, largely because they're concerned, and quite understandably, that people could misinterpret these results and simply think, oh, well, we don't have to worry about climate change then. That's, uh, that's good. That's one less thing to worry about. Now let's all go to the pub. And, uh, and let's get back on uh, the bandwagon of economic growth, and uh, if we grow the economy fast enough, then when we run out of these fossil fuels, we'll be smart enough to invent um, enough renewable energy to uh, to replace them. And there is a widespread belief that um, that there's a sort of a, a fundamental law of economics that uh, and supply and demand that simply says as you run out of something, like energy, for example, uh, you, the laws of economics simply dictate that substitution kicks in and... Um, and the next good energy supply will come along just in time. And you alluded to it uh, uh, a little while ago that we actually are heading into very much uncharted territory because if you look, if you try and, and look back through history at, uh, and try and find an analogue where a primary energy supply went into outright decline um, due to scarcity and... Uh, and that problem was solved, I don't even know if you can find one that's relevant. You might find some sort of analogue in 1500s Europe where uh, in certain locations like the UK there was started to become scarcity of, fi- of firewood mm-hmm. prior to the development of coal resources. People have looked at Cuba in the special period, especially people in the permaculture community um, who have looked at, at the sort of withdrawal of Soviet Union oil and the, uh, the sanctions imposed by the US and said, well, that provides a little microcosm of uh, energy scarcity. To be honest, I, I think there's a lot that we can learn, an enormous amount we can learn from Cuba in terms of um, how it's able to uh, de- deliver a relatively high standard of living, high level of education and um, high life expectancy with a fraction of the energy and material throughput that we have in uh, in other economies, I think we need to look very carefully at any sort of examples we can find mm-hmm. like that. But in terms of whether Cuba offers a, a practical example of um, of a country that um, went through an energy scarcity episode and sort of came out of it unscathed, I'm not sure that it does. So there's this widespread belief that we'll start to run out of this stuff and... Um, 
that won't be a problem because economics will kick in and deliver something even better. Mm. And so I think the getting back to the, the nexus with climate change, um, my feeling about this is that people... Um, climate change is a, is a cause that we can attach ourselves to and solving it is a matter of choice. We can sort of... We can say, well, we have choice in our individual consumption patterns. We have uh, choice about our electricity providers in our homes. We have choice um, you know, democratically uh, in in terms of what the government can choose to do, and it can support coal as our current government does, or it could do something um, a bit more proactive and uh, and support renewable energy. But it all comes down to choice. Whereas when we start to look at it through the lens of finite resources and depletion of uh, of fossil fuel resources and, and non-renewable resources, it takes away that element of choice because you end up having to face up to this fairly uh, stark reality that uh, there are limits to, to the scale of the human endeavour. And, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why people gravitate more towards the climate change cause because there's a perception that we have a range of things, but if we have sufficient public will and political will, we can solve it. Whereas the peak energy problem has a lot less, uh, there's a lot less light shining down the tunnel. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. You are bringing the apocalypse on 3 R with Adam and Jed in the studio talking with James Ward, senior lecturer at the University of South Australia on his paper, The Projection of World Fossil Fuels by Country. We dug down fairly deep into that, but I want to talk about another one which came out last year, I think it was. Is decoupling GDP growth from environmental impact possible? That is a very big and important question too since um, certainly, if you are correct, energy use will have to go down, which tends to mean that environmental impact tends to go down. Does that mean GDP growth in our level of consumption will have to go down, uh, at least of services as well as goods? Um, is, Is that possible? What did you guys look into and how did you come up with an opinion on that one, James? Sure. Okay. So we've got to take a, take a step back to 2015, so mm. same, same time that we were publishing our fossil fuel paper. There was a paper released by scientists um, from CSIRO, and um, they were really pushing a, a very upbeat message. In fact, it was preceded by or released at the same time as um, the Australian National Outlook. So it's a, something that the CSIRO did um, to provide, yeah, like I said, an upbeat outlook about Australia's economy, and it was um, saying, okay, let's let's see if we can um, develop a, a scenario in which the economy grows, but our environmental impacts um, don't grow. So uh, we we solve climate change, we get into carbon farming in a in a great big way, and it's a um, yeah, a really positive sort of outlook mm. that has. Uh, kind of having your cake and eating it. You're uh, talking about growing the economy while not increasing your environmental impact. And that certainly would be the only way that we could um, uh, 
that we could grow the economy because we're we're running into these what we call planetary boundaries in a variety of different ways. We've uh, focused pretty heavily on uh, on energy so far. So that was published, and it was published in a very high profile journal, a journal mm-hmm. called Nature, and uh, the highest, the highest profile journal you can get, mm-hmm. and that gave it a certain amount of kind of gravitas um, in the scientific community. And and my colleagues and I looked at that and thought, well, hang on, that. We, we fundamentally disagree with with that concept because we it's a little I mean I'm trying to explain it with an analogy so I'm currently sitting in a car the car's not running but um, uh, that's where I'm speaking to you from but if I was driving this car out on the street it's a it's a manual car I can change gears now if I change from first to second gear my speed will go up and my relative fuel consumption will go down because it's more efficient to be in second gear than it is in first gear and I can do that, you know, I can do that five times, the five-speed car. Um, and each time I would have the appearance of going faster while consuming less fuel. Um, and so by decoupling logic, you could say, well, what? every time I change gears, I'm, I'm decoupling my uh, speed from my fuel consumption. Mm-hmm. But there's a very fixed limit to how efficient I could get. If, even if I had six gears or seven gears, there's a limit to how, how fast I can go and there's a limit to um, how much fuel I can, or how, how fuel efficient I can be. Mm-hmm. So those, the, our, our economy works the same way. We can do things that change, shift our mode of production and we can move from being materially intensive to being more service oriented and things like that. And that changes our, um, our fundamentals and we can make our economy more efficient. Uh, at some point, if we want people to be able to move around and we want people to be able to move goods around and consume things and and do things, eat things, for example, um, there's a certain amount of just basic energy that is required to simply get stuff done. Even if you're in a, a really sort of high-tech service economy, you need electricity to power your, uh, your computers. You need... Um, some sort of energy supply to uh, to drive your agriculture, and if not, um, you know, to, then to distribute food and to distribute uh, people around the place. You need a certain minimum amount of energy, even if it's more efficient. So, so we had this. We looked at that and said, well, you can't claim that you can just continue growing the economy forever and decouple that from uh, basic fundamental inputs like energy and like materials. And, and we felt that this, this point needed to be made scientifically because if it's not, then we would have that CSIRO-led paper. And I should you know, hasten to add there are great people at the CSIRO, and um, uh, I'm not trying to uh, sort of tarnish that really good organisation, but it's a very prestigious group published in a very prestigious paper, and it stood there as a sort of a scientific argument that said you could have your cake and eat it. You could stop growing your environmental impact and uh, keep growing your economy. And that keeps alive the perception that everything's okay. So all the stuff we've been talking about, about the need to fundamentally shift uh, and urgently shift, not just to address climate change, but also to address these um, limits to growth that come from uh, running short on energy supplies, uh, phosphorus supplies, um, discharge of nutrients into uh, into the sea, plastics, you name it, all of these 
problems that are kind of coalescing. We need fundamental change in our economy. All that goes out the window when you have a scientific validation that says, actually, you can just keep growing the economy. You just do it cleaner and yeah. with, with more taste. And so we developed a, a very simple um, mathematical description of how the use of energy and the use of raw materials fundamentally depends on the number of people in your economy and um, the per capita level of affluence, or GDP per capita. And you can, you can explore future scenarios where that ratio changes and you become more efficient and you don't need quite as much energy to, um, to provide a certain amount of GDP, so that's a more efficient economic scenario, or you don't need as much materials. But, but at the end of the day, there are limits to how efficient you can be. Yeah. There are uh, diminishing returns on, on efficiency, right? Because if you, if you start off, let's say your car's 30% efficient at turning fuel into forward momentum, um, you're actually, you, I mean, it's not, you can't get to 100%. That's just the laws of thermodynamic, right. thermodynamics don't allow it. But let's say the upper limit theoretically is 55%. Getting to 50% is going to be really hard and getting to 54% is going to be even harder. Like it's just yep. your, pushing up against that limit gets harder and harder. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and we, can, we can talk about how great it will be when, when we have sufficient leadership that um, facilitates the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Mm. But that doesn't suddenly put us um, into a scenario where we can grow forever. And I, I think that's an important point to, to sort of you know, um, pause and, and reflect on. Switching from coal to, to wind or, or solar or hydro or some combination of those uh, renewable sources doesn't suddenly mean we can grow forever because they all have their own footprint. You, you can't... Uh, you, you, you will eventually run out of windy locations for, for wind farms. You will eventually run out of rooftops and, um, and so on to put solar panels or you'll run out of uh, some deserted arid land for... Uh, for solar farms and things. So there's a finite limit. It's quite a high limit, especially in a country like Australia where we're endowed with great renewable resources. But mm. we, we do need to accept that even if we get this right and we move into the clean forms of production and we have sustainable fisheries and we have sustainable agriculture, permaculture, renewable energy and all these things, that doesn't suddenly mean, oh, now we're clean, we can grow forever. Mm. But we've got to... Uh, at the same time, face up to the reality that our growth-oriented economy is is fundamentally unsustainable. It'd be nice to chill out for a while, wouldn't it, and just not grow for a while? Let's just relax. Exactly. Let's, let's shrink for a bit. Take, take the pressure off. <laughs> yeah, and, I, not that honest, I'm suggesting I, it's going to be an easy process to make that transition. No, but you know, you know I've just finished reading a book... Um, by Bruce Pascoe called Dark Emu. Yeah, and great book. We've my, had him on the show. Have you really? That's fantastic. Mm. And um, I think that the um, we we are missing in Australia. We are missing a fantastic opportunity. That um, I'm really grateful to um, to Bruce Pascoe for sort of opening, certainly opening my eyes to this, and hopefully many, many more eyes. There's, the, there's a fantastic opportunity we have to learn from cultures that somehow were vibrant and um, and are still vibrant uh, 
you know, against all odds. But you can't you can't have sustained economic growth for eighty thousand years, and they didn't need to have sustained economic growth for eighty thousand years, and yet they still found a purpose for being here. Mm. And we need to rediscover that purpose because right now we have economic leadership, political leadership that. Uh, seems to only find purpose in a 3% per annum GDP growth. And we need to find a bigger purpose than that, because I'm not getting out of bed for um, <laughs> 3%. <laughs> That's uh, true. And it's a, it's a good point that like GDP doesn't equate to quality of life necessarily. And I also think it's um, really good that you bring up Bruce's book and the, that we have a Indigenous example of a culture that um, was able to find itself living harmoniously within the limits supplied by the energy resources of the sun. And that's not to say that they didn't fuck up when they got here because, you know, megafauna died. I don't think that was a coincidence, but they learnt from their mistakes and created a sustainable culture. And we're going through the fuck up phase right now, but um, there's a model there right in front of us uh, and a whole lot of uh, technical skills, the kind of things that Bruce goes into, but also philosophical perspectives I'm sure that we could learn from. We still have James Ward on the line from the University of South Australia and we've been talking about how mm, the future of global fossil fuel production and how that might play out and also can we decouple GDP from environmental impacts? Just a small subset of your interests. Is there anything that you'd like to point out? Do you want to... Um, you know, at this point, I don't know, maybe people are listening, they're like, how can I study with this guy? Um, <laughs> what's, yeah, yeah. what's that mean in your world, James? Uh, look, um, we've, uh, we've got some, some really interesting projects that we're doing in the urban agriculture space. So it's, it was fascinating when, uh, when you and I crossed paths a, a few weeks ago for the first time, Adam, because we discovered that we, our interests overlapped in so many ways. So um, in, in terms of this interest in sort of the, the coming energy crisis and even just the, simply the name of your show, Greening the Apocalypse, I mean, that so succinctly summarises where I'm coming from. I think we've got a lot of people marooned in cities um, and uh, wanting to do something and a lot of us are kind of gravitating towards permaculture and, and these kind of um, local earthy, green, leafy, crunchy, um, tasty solutions. And I think that that is where the hope really is because if you look, and I tell my students this when I I lecture to them on limits to growth, uh, I say don't get depressed by this stuff. Think about the happiest time you've ever, uh, think of your happiest memory that you can come up with. And I can guarantee it has nothing to do with your um, immediate rate of energy consumption i can guarantee that your happiest memories will be uh will be based on or inspired by people you were with maybe having uh having a drink or two a couple of bottles of wine um enjoying some nice food and it it has nothing to do with uh necessarily getting on a an airplane and um and consuming huge amounts of fossil fuel it's to do with just enjoying each other's company. And you know, we've got to really rediscover that, especially in an, an era where we're all um, spending so much time plugged in digitally. Yeah. And that brings a whole lot of good things. We can do so much good with that uh, digital media, but we've got to really just reconnect with each other and realize that 
that's the, the I think that's the, the lesson we get from looking at these other cultures that have endured for such long periods of time compared to the 200 odd 300 years that industrial civilization has taken to dig itself into a hole it basically can't get out of absolutely i'm so glad you got a chance to finish up with that james i just spent two weeks on a teaching a permaculture course in the country unplugged and uh you just described my experience very perfectly uh it has been really wonderful talking to you um love to have you back as you continue to do your research well we have been greening the apocalypse i've been adam grubb you have been jed mccartney we will see you in the future and until then have all the fun this has been a podcast from 3 R 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au 